0: How are you doing? It's good to see you. Well, as Dwight mentioned, we're about a week and a half into the season of Lent, a season that has typically involved self-examination and penitence, uh, marked with self-denial, namely fasting, something that is not very fun, is it? And so I want to take a poll quickly, Um, If you made a commitment during this season of Lent to fast from something, I want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you, I know a lot of you are like, that's a Catholic thing. No, that's a Christian thing. So keep your hands up. If you're fasting from something for Lent, all the other people you should feel guilty for not. No, I'm just kidding. Now, if you're fasting from something that is food related, keep your hands up. Food-related, keep your hands up. Still a lot of hands up, okay? Now, uh, keep your hand up if you are absolutely enjoying every minute of it. And all the hands go down. And if your hand's still up, you're lying. Fasting is difficult because we have an obsession with material things. We have an obsession with food. We're so obsessed with food It's sometimes hilarious. I don't know if you've heard the comedian Jim Gaffigan talk about food. He can talk about it for like over an hour and it's hilarious. You know why? Because it's true. Hot pocket. (laughs) My... One of my African friends has a great observation about Americans and food. He says, you know, uh, Africans, we eat when we're hungry. Americans, you don't eat when you're hungry. You eat when it's time. <laughs> it's time to eat. I'm not hungry, but it's time to eat, okay? <laughs> right? We're obsessed with food. And, and, and fasting breaks Undo attachments to material things in order to stimulate a spiritual appetite. That's why we're fasting. Now, my love affair with food began way back when I was born. <laughs> and there, there was a time in my life, and maybe many of you can relate, that I could eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, as long as I wanted, and it didn't do anything to this right here. <coughs> I was always hungry. It's the hollow leg syndrome, you know what I'm saying? And it's because my, my metabolism was here and my intake was here. This is good, okay? And, and so I just kind of kept, kept doing that and, and kept doing that, and then all of a sudden, you know what this is right here? You know what this is? when when metabolism and intake kind of cross this called the age of 30. <laughs> okay? And my intake was the same metabolism then then I had kind of this thing going on. Do you know what the scientific term for this is? Gaining weight. <laughs> and Back in 2007 I'm, I'm about a buck 75 right now back in 2007, this frame was carrying 220 pounds. And my wife came to me around then, and she was in uh, this Bible study. It was a Bible study on Daniel. And they were encouraging these ladies to take a Daniel fast. And so she came to me and she's like, you know, honey, we're, we're doing this Daniel fast and I don't want to do it by myself. I really want you to, to do that with me. And I said, wait, you mentioned fasting. I'm going to need more details. She said, well, it's a Daniel fast, you know, giving up the rich foods of, of Babylon. And what does that include? Well, like, you know, meat. <laughs> Mm-mm. She's like, really, it's just vegetables and water. And I was like, that's what rabbits eat. I eat rabbits. There is no way that I'm doing this. And she was like, well, I really want you to to do this with me. And so reluctantly I agreed. And two weeks in, I'm telling you, it was horrible. 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 But I noticed something a couple of weeks in, my energy level started to come up. I, I didn't realize I was feeling like tired all the time and was out of breath when I had to do things like put on my shoes. And <laughs> and my energy level increased and I, I started to drop a little weight. I thought, you know what, I'm going to exercise along with this fast. And so I started running and and long story short, at the end of 40 days, I was feeling really good, and I would lost about 10 to 15 pounds. And I'm like, hey, babe, this is great. Like, I, I think I want to keep doing this. I, I don't think meat and my body agree with each other very well. And she's like, I don't want to keep doing this. That was horrible. <laughs> and I was like, well, I really want to. She's like, great, I will eat whatever you cook. And so that's when I became the family chef, and it's become a passion of mine. And I went on to lose about 45 to 50 pounds. But you know what? I look back on that experiment, and I was far more obsessed with the physical benefits of that fast. And I think I missed some spiritual lessons that God was trying to teach me. Fasting is not a weight loss program. Even in my fasting... I was still focused on the physical. I was focused on the material. And it just goes to show, as with any discipline, you can observe it meticulously and completely miss God in the process. And so it is true with God's people in Isaiah 58, where we're going to be uh, spending some time in this morning. If you need a Bible, you can... Raise your hand, and uh, our ushers will come and give you a copy of the scriptures. Isaiah 58. We start in uh, verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion, and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. And so I want you to notice something that's very striking in this passage. You have a group of people that are earnestly and passionately seeking God, a nation that seems eager to know the ways of God. And they're actually fasting to the letter of the law. And God says, declare to my people their rebellion. They're passionately seeking God, and God is not answering. Now, we don't know exactly what they were asking for, but the Hebrew says that they were drawing near to Mishpat Adonai Zedek which means Lord of justice. And so we can only assume that one of the things that they were crying out for was justice. They're in repentance mode. Fasting, sackcloth, ashes, prayer, repentance, I'm sorry. But none of this changed the behaviors that really matter to God. They had all the external signs and earnestly seeking for God to answer them. But verse 3 says, why do we fast? But you don't see. Why do we humble ourselves and you don't notice? Something really concerns me about these first three verses in this chapter you have a body of believers who have meticulous religious observance. But God is telling them that they are in complete rebellion. They're earnestly seeking him. So is it possible, I'm just going to pose a question, I'm not going to provide the answer. Well, yes I am, but I'm going to pose a question. Is it possible for a Christian to meticulously observe disciplines, to study God's word, to pray, and maybe even other disciplines like fasting and meditation? Is it possible for us to to go to church nearly every Sunday of the year to tithe, to serve, to even raise our hands in worship, but not too high? Is it possible? And God considers that rebellion? According to this passage, the answer is apparently. Because a lot of that has to do with the external, and God looks past the external, and he sees their shallow hearts for what they are. They didn't want... They didn't want reform. They have sackcloth, they have ashes, they have false humility, quarreling and fighting. They didn't want repentance. That's what God wants. God wants genuine remorse, genuine reform. And then there can be genuine restoration. Now these are strong words of mine, but I want to show you how this is uh, reflected in the scriptures. In verse 3, it says, Why have we fasted, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fast, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. And so we find that in their fasting, they're actually seeking their own pleasure and their own desire, their own interests. And yet they're oppressing their workers. In verse 4, it's figurative language, it's imagery. It is the more powerful, the stronger, the richer. wringing out the weaker like a towel. That's what's reflected in the original language. Squeezing them and striking with the fist. This is their day-to-day reality. Now, do you ever see joy-filled, peaceful people on Sunday? And then Monday through Saturday, they're complete jerks. Ladies are like, you just described my husband. I'm kidding. Maybe uh, Christian business owners who don't provide a fair wage for their workers, maybe exploit their workers because the bottom line is more important than people, maybe force your workers to do things that they ordinarily wouldn't because it's unethical, but you do because it positively affects the bottom line. And then we come to God asking for justice, we come to God in prayer, and we wonder, why don't you hear? Well, this type of Christian usually ignores massive themes throughout the Scripture, and they have an uncanny ability to interpret the Scriptures in a way that benefits themselves. This type of Christian is is living in blindness. And so in verses 5 and 6, God challenges their repentance, pointing them to a new type of fasting, a new way of life. He says, is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. We're going to come back to that portion. But basically, God is saying, stop exploiting and oppressing. Feed the hungry. Welcome and provide shelter for the alien. Clothe the naked. Namely, act justly and care for the poor. Be a good human being. And care for those who are suffering. Now God's heart for the poor, for the impoverished, is etched in every major portion of Scripture. Over 2,000 Scriptures have to do with poverty and injustice. And so I'm going to take the rest of my time this morning and I'm going to read all 2,000 verses. I really want to get the point across. Now, we are going to be reading some scriptures that have to do with God's heart towards the poor and the oppressed. But I think first we need to have an understanding of what poverty is and and how bad it is. Poverty can be uh, defined as um, when an individual lacks basic necessities in their context. What's considered as necessities... When a person lacks those things, they're impoverished. So it could be proper education, an adequate job with an adequate wage, proper shelter, enough nutrition and clean water. There are many people who lack most or all of those things. In fact, over a billion people in the world today do not have access to those things at all over a billion are impoverished living in a state of poverty and poverty is complicated it is complex solving it is difficult poverty will force you as a human being to do unspeakable things in order to survive A few years ago, my organization, Poetis International, became aware that uh, human exploitation and trafficking was a problem in Zambia. And Zambia is on the tier two watch list of our government, which basically means that not all of Zambia's policies are working to eliminate trafficking and exploitation. There's tier one, tier two, tier three. And so what we decided to do was to conduct some community assessments and some baseline surveys, basically start interviewing people to find out how bad it really is. And these interviews led me one day into a brothel in Choma, Zambia. And I've been there many, many times. I didn't even know this building was a brothel. But I'm sitting in this room with this young Zambian girl who's like 14 or 15 years old. Her name is Irene. And through tears, she shared her story with me, how she was being forced to to be in the bars across the street, how she was being forced to serve up to 10 to 15 Johns every single day. And as a father who has daughters, I I couldn't take it. And so I said, Irene, do you want to be here? She goes, no. Do you want to leave? Yeah. Do you want to come with me right now? She goes, yeah. And so I took her. I took her. Let's go. And I got her to a safe place. I got her with our team. I said, look, here's her situation. I can't conduct these interviews without doing something. And so you need to keep her safe, and you need to get this young girl back to her family. And so I thought everything was great. Now, I was leaving the next day, and so that day I drove about an hour and a half down the road where the airport is, and I'm eating supper, and one of our team members calls me, and I'm just enjoying a piece of pizza, and he's like, they're looking for you, they're looking for you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The law enforcement, the police, they're looking for you. And I was like, why? He said, because the madam of that young girl went to the law enforcement and said that a Makua, a white man, kidnapped her daughter. And she wants her daughter back. And so law enforcement was looking for me and would have likely charged me with kidnapping. I'm really glad that I was out of town at the moment and leaving the country the next day. That's what I do a lot. I come in, I kick the hornet's nest, and then I fly home. (laughs) It's a great plan. Long story short, uh, we got Irene back to her family. But you know the saddest part about this story? We found out that it was her family who sold her. In the first place, out of desperation to survive, they sold their daughter, their little girl, into slavery. Irene was one of 45 million plus slaves in the world today. International Justice Mission says there's more today than at any point in history. And trafficking and exploitation comes in various forms. It could be forced labor, where you work and work and work, but the wage that you receive doesn't pay off your debt to your boss. And so you are enslaved. You're an indentured servant. It comes in the form of sex trafficking and prostitution. It comes in the form of child soldiers and it even comes in the form of trafficking body parts on the black market and for incantations and witchcraft. Throughout Scripture, God shares his heart for people like Irene. His heart breaks for people who are living in that reality. Right at the beginning of God's people's journey gave him the law he expressed his concern for the poor and this is where I'm going to start reading the 2000 scriptures he says do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you are foreigners in Egypt do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless if you do and they cry out to me I will certainly hear their cry my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword your wives will become widows and your children fatherless If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The unmistakable sentiment. Behind God's commands to his people was his overwhelming compassion for the alien for the orphan for the widow for the impoverished God is a justice worker and he calls us to follow suit In Deuteronomy 10 He says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And God's concern for justice for the poor is something that is etched throughout major sections of Scripture. And so, journey with me through a couple sections. Let's go to the Psalms. It says, He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. And sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. It continues into the prophets. And by the way, if you are living a very comfortable life and want it to stay that way, ignore these books. Right here, don't read them. It will mess you up. Amos talks about justice and righteousness for the poor, pointing out the sin of God's people. Hosea, steadfast love and knowledge of God, including caring for the poor, and points out the sin of God's people. Micah, 6.8, justice, kindness, mercy for the poor, while pointing out the sins of God's people. He's always getting back to the heart of God, which is justice for the poor and the oppressed. I could turn to far more scriptures, but I think you get the point. And it almost seems like God gives preference to the poor with so many aggressive scriptures that show God's heart for the poor. We might be led that, uh, to believe that God loves the poor more than anyone else. But I think there's a powerful explanation that was in verse 7 of Isaiah 58, when it says, do not turn away your own flesh and blood. Now, all of these scriptures led to Tim Keller saying in Generous Justice that Oh my goodness, no, go back, I forgot that one. And then it goes on. (laughs) Jesus, I forgot Jesus. (laughs) It's like the most important part of the sermon, I forgot Jesus, it goes on. Jesus says, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Whatever you did for the last, whatever you did for the smallest of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Thank you, Jesus. This is when we stand before him. This is the sheep and the goats judgment. He is not going to ask you how many times you went to church. That's important. He's not going to ask us how many Bible studies we were a part of. It's important. He's not going to ask us that. He's not even going to ask us how good of a father, husband, or grandparent we were. It's important. That's not what he's going to ask us. That's what he's going to ask us. And this is what led Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, Generous justice, a deep social conscience and a life poured out in service to others, especially the poor, is the inevitable sign of real faith. Now don't get me wrong. Works will not get you into heaven. You will not get into heaven without them. A social, deep social concern, especially for the poor, according to what Jesus just said, is the Not a, the inevitable sign of real faith. Now I'm back on track. Thank you for being patient. It seems that God prefers the poor. They made it in the object of Jesus' mission statement. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I've studied that word a thousand different ways. Do you know what that means? It means poor. Poor. And verse 7 says, Do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Do not turn away from your family. Those of you who are parents, let's say you have four children. Three are healthy, and one develops a terminal illness. Does it change the way that you love all your children? No. But who is going to become the center of your attention? The one who is suffering. Right? You would do anything to relieve their suffering. You would stop at nothing to relieve them, to heal them. God, is a dad. He's a father. He sacrificed his own son to come to the world and to rescue currently a billion of his children who are crying out, who are suffering. We might have one, and it breaks our heart, and it consumes our time and energy. God, the father, dad, has a billion suffering. And when you put it in the context of a family that there are brothers and there are sisters, you can understand why God is telling us the well-off, the well-being, take care of my children who are suffering. Those are your brothers. Those are your sisters. Do not turn away your own flesh and blood. So what is God calling us to to do? How is God calling us to respond? Well, I want to read a few scriptures that help point the way. In 1 John, it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And in James, it says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Deep social concern, especially for the poor, is the inevitable sign of real faith. Shane Claiborne, modern-day activist, it's pretty aggressive and says, if you have two coats, you stole one from the poor. It goes on in Proverbs. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And Proverbs 19, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. And I'm going to refer to Isaiah and Amos here, but do you get the point? God is responding by commanding by inviting us to be his response now last week Craig taught us that internalizing the word doesn't necessarily change the way that we see the world that was true for me as I was studying for ministry and getting my master's I was reading these scriptures I was reading these scriptures and I didn't really know what to do with it. I was even serving here as a worship pastor. And God wanted to show me that there was impoverished places in my heart. He was going to give me a gift. He was going to give me a vision of the world the way that he sees it. He was going to call me out of leading worship from the stage and living worship with my life. And that's what happened in 2005. It just, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I went to Zambia for the first time. And I came back, and I was still leading worship in the local church, but I was so miserable. It was a great gig. it just got to sing pretty on the weekends. And I was miserable. I was unsettled. And I was like, you know what, I, I just I need to hear from God. I need to hear from God. And so I started to fast. And when you don't hear from God, a lot of people, for whatever reason, they go out into the woods. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to try that. I'm going to go out into the woods. I'm going to grow my beard as long as I can to enhance the experience. And so I went out into the woods, and I decided I'm just going to play Russian roulette with my Bible. It's a terrible Bible study method. But if you're not hearing from God, open it, point, and see what he says. So I did that. Bam! stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. When you spread out your arms in prayer, I will not listen. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. I'm like, I don't want to hear that. I'm going to try it again. So I did it again. I said, bam! I hate, I despise your religious feasts. What? I cannot stand your assemblies. Huh? Away with the noise of your songs. This is not good. I will not listen to the music of your guitar, Micah. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like an ever-failing stream. I'm like, this is not working. God spoke to me. He convicted me. He said, Micah, you are a champion of this vertical expression and dimension of our relationship. And you challenge others to love God and to worship God and to practice the disciplines. But you ignore this whole horizontal dimension of a broken world. You're ignoring the lost and the least. You're ignoring the poor and the vulnerable. And because you're doing that, I don't want to hear you sing anymore. Until you get that right. Because your worship is incomplete. And so, I want justice and I want righteousness, and I want you to consummate your worship just like my son did. He broke himself open, he poured himself out in streams of love and mercy that are healing the world, and I want you to do the same. I want you to get off the stage and get into the streets. That's the song I want you to sing. And so, I did. And it's changed my life, it's changed my worldview. It's changed what I know about God's heart for the poor. And as I've been in missions and development, some would say, and then kinda in the church, kinda straddling the fence, you know what I find today? This is what I find and this is the saddest part about it. In the world today there are far too many unbelieving activists and inactive believers. Far too many. People who are helping the poor and they're so far from God. And people who say they love God and they're sitting in a pew. What God wants is believing activists and active believers. And the inevitable sign of real faith is deep social conscience and a concern for the poor. God is challenging us with a new kind of fast this morning, ladies and gentlemen. He's challenging us with a fast where we break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the least, for the impoverished, for the suffering. And what's amazing about this is if we're we're brave enough to do this, then there are benefits to us. In verse eight, it says, when you fast like that, Your light will shine like the noonday sun. Your healing will come quickly. Your righteousness will go ahead. God's protection will be around you, behind you. His presence will surround you. His direction will lead you. And you will be a well-watered garden. When you call to me, then I will answer you. Because you've got my heart. So a true fast is to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out in care and concern for the poor for their freedom and ours as well. And so where do we go from here? Well, you're going to fast. Did you hear me? I'm not asking you if you will, you are. And we've prepared something to help you out. Rice and beans. Subsistence diet, what the majority of the two thirds world lives on. Now, right here, this is enough for a family of four. And you're going, that ain't enough for my family of four. (laughs) We're challenging you to fast for seven days, eating only rice and beans. This will get you started. And when you start doing this with your family, and your stomach begins to growl probably by day two, and you're thinking, I hate that Pastor Micah, we've developed a devotional for you to go through. (laughs) With your family. That talks about the reality of the brokenness of the world. This world is broken. It's going to show you that God has a plan And it's going to show you that we are the solution. Seven days, or you could do one meal for an extended period of time. But I really challenge you to take this seriously, to get a new worldview, to hear from God, to fast, to pray, and to invite your kids into that. We've provided this packet for everyone out in the lobby. And so I want everyone to to grab one as you go home. And the cool thing is, is that one of the material benefits of eating just this for a week, you save money. You save money, but you don't get to keep it because you're going to bring it on the 26th and give it to missions. See what I'm doing there? That is a fast that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And you know what? I've done this with my family before. And... Uh, we did it a little bit differently one time in that we had a certain amount of money that we had that we could spend in a day. We had like $10 that we could spend on food per day. And one day, uh, I think my, my daughter ate like three peanut butter sandwiches for lunch or something. We ran out of money. And I'm like, well, not all of us can eat. And I remember the first time I had to give up a meal so that my kids could eat. It was sobering. I could have gone to the cupboard and got some Cheez-Its or something, but this is the reality for so many fathers and mothers all over the world. They have to fast from eating so that their kids can eat. That is the perspective I want us to have. I want want us to see the world the way that God sees it. The worship team is going to come uh, right now. To prepare us as we go out to grab our rice and beans, as we begin to fast and pray. And we're gonna sing that song again, Lord, I need you. And maybe you just need some time to go, ugh, I don't think I can do this. And maybe that points to uh, an impoverished place in your heart. Maybe you're scared to do it, it's difficult. And so take this time to really reflect, look deep inside, and say, what would be keeping me from doing this? Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to confess to hear from the Lord. Uh,
1: firstly, I want to thank Mike for giving us a challenging word. I think we can thank someone when they do that to us. Um, I said last week that I believe that this series will be challenging, and uh, I'm convinced that uh, we'll all get to experience how challenging it is as we pick up The rice and the beans out in the auditorium there is enough in there for a meal for one uh, one meal rather for uh, four people for one day so it's like a starter kit and again we want this to be a challenge that is a challenge to you and your family so however you need to break that up do so but i do encourage you to do this as well there will be a moment where you will think i'm not doing this anymore That is actually the profound moment that we want each and every person to come to because that is the reality that many people live with each and every day. And as Micah said, it would be easy for us to quit and go to the cupboard. But in that moment, what is happening is we're facing the impoverished nature of our own soul if we cannot sacrifice something for the sake of someone else. What I'll demonstrate to you in the message next week is how the early church went above and beyond in moments like that. And so we do encourage you just to go through this process of what we would consider to be a true fast, and when the temptation comes to quit, then say, God, we need you. Because we need to see the world in the way that you see it in order for us to be a part of the solution of changing the world that we see. Now as you leave today and you pick up the the rice and the beans out there, you'll also see some invitation cards that are there that will tell you the times of our Easter services. We want you as well to begin praying about those people that God is laying on your heart for you to be Jesus to over the next few weeks and then invite them into one of our many Easter services. So please, as you leave here, don't forget to pick up the brown bags. Don't forget to pick up the invitation cards. At the same time, I draw your attention to the fact that we are in the season where we are going before God, for God to reveal to us those people that He wants to join our elder board, our elder team, that help lead and govern the church together with me. If You, as you go through your prayer time, are sensing God may be sharing that with you. Then we will uh, give you more information. And I believe already in the program guide, there is more information for those that are feeling that uh, tug from God. But also God may be giving you a name for another person. Just pray on that name. And if God is tugging on you to do that, then uh, just pick up the program guide there and read about what it is that God is uh, calling you to do and how you can take the next steps. Church, thanks for being here today. I know getting here an hour early was a, a challenge for many of us, uh, but um, thank you for doing that. And I just want to send you on your way with a prayer of blessing. So I want you stand with us as we pray and just go into the rest of our day. Friends and family, God has received your worship. He's delighted in it. Now, as you've worshipped God with your lips, go into your world, into his world. Go be with your friends, your family, your colleagues. Go be with his people and worship God with your lives. Go in grace, go in peace. And may the God of all grace go with you. Have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. God bless.